Hey guys, sorry, Delamont here. This is a recent Facebook Live that we've uploaded as a podcast. Enjoy. When you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Great. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. And uh, we are here with Scott Masseri. Did I say that right? Very good. Thank you. Sorry. Very good. Okay. Um, to talk about his recent win and how H2H had a part in it. So we're, we're re- very excited to, to talk with him. Uh, if you are in the H2H crew, you can be on Zoom with us, which many of you are coming into the room right now. We will take your questions first. And if you are on the Facebook platform, welcome to you. Let us know where you are uh, listening from. And if you have any questions, Christy will grab those and put them in the chat over here in the Zoom platform. So Scott, welcome. So glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Yay. So tell us a little bit about first, how did you come into the H2H universe to to begin with? Like, how did we get connected? Sure. So I um, heard about your podcast. I think you did an interview with Michael Cowan one of your many very good interviews on Travel Lawyer Nation. Um, and I was like, this lady is, well, let me back up and say, I am not a fan of fluff. I'm not a fan of feel good. You know, I'm, a, I'm an asshole. I'm a, I'm a professional <laughs> asshole. That's what I do for a living. I don't have time. Are, for you, are you all? Yeah, no, uh, no. We all are. We all are. <laughs> I don't have time for self-help and coaching and things. But you were actually providing answers. I was like, I need to go find where this lady is talking on her own. And so I found your podcast. I like immediately bought your book. It's dog-eared. I bought copies for everybody in the office. I made them Aww. highlight everything. I said, this is what we're going to use. And I knew I had a big trial coming up. So I don't. Our practice is a little bit different than probably a lot of your um, members. Um, We do a lot. I do a lot of plaintiff law. It's all complex business law. So as a result, there's no cut and dried. Here's the insurance company on this side. Here's the plaintiff on this side. We usually represent a plaintiff that has been defrauded. Uh, Sort of my practice focus uh, revolves around business fraud. So securities fraud, in particular, um, bank fraud, uh, investment or other contract fraud, that's sort of where we live. And as a result, there's not a lot going on in the plaintiff's world. There isn't a good business plaintiff's bar. So I have to kind of use the principles that I learned from my personal injury friends and sort of apply them in this instance, in which case they work very well. It's the same, the same principles. The jury are the same people that are the same things. Um, so as a result, um, because of that, I started, I became, I, I ravenously, uh, devoured everything you put out basically. And, um, so that's, that's how that. I became acquainted with you. Sorry. Cause you we were speaking that. things that I heard that were true. It was like, that makes sense. It's finally, someone is saying things that make actual sense in front of a jury. Okay, well, what what was making sense and what didn't make sense? Like uh, up until we we came in contact, what was not making sense for you? So I think well, no one had any answers. You know, ah. literally, what were the things that I had had? And you know, I, it's not it's not just you. Although I think you are at the very front of the wave. There's um, you know David Ball, fifteen years ago, was saying amazing things that I still draw from today. Rick Friedman, I mean, was saying amazing things that I definitely drew from. But in particular, the idea that groups think in a way to self-preserve the group. And you are not going to go against the group. It's like, of of course, this is how we should be addressing juries. How come no one has said this before? And that, that in particular, like, how do you create the jury to think as a group? And it, the crazy thing is it makes so much sense. How come people were not saying this 30 years ago? The, every juror that I've ever met believes the same thing that, that my, my mother, that my grandmother believes, you know, 
right is right, wrong is wrong. And if you can harness those principles for you, they'll do all the work for you. And that's what was that's really right. so speaking to me. I was like, this is right. We, we need to use this. So, so we talk about a lot about how the, the jury can solve your problems if you let them, but that's, that's a big mindset shift, right? Is to let these people actually help you instead of viewing them as the enemy that's going to kill you and you got to kill them first. And so what mindset shifts did you have to make going into this trial after you kind of came in contact with this information? One of the big things was, so I'm in Tennessee, my practice way, I have an office in Nashville, but I'm in the Chattanooga office. So we're in Southeast Tennessee. It's the reddest of the red states. And that's very comfortable. My family is, is pretty red. That doesn't bother me at all. Um, but jurors are, to, to be conservative, they're extremely conservative in this county. And so I was always taught, you know, ask them what kind of bumper stickers they have on their car. Ask them, you know, what kind of magazines they took in. And I quickly was like, this, is, this doesn't get me anywhere because it's not a left and a right issue, mm -hmm. uh, maybe today, notwithstanding um, in the news, but it, right, fraud is fraud. Um, That's right. Treating people dishonestly is dishonest, whether you are left, whether you are right. These people all think the same things. They're normal American people. And you don't have to go to the left or the right to find those things. So half the things I've been taught to ask people in voir dire didn't matter. Well, that, that's so true. We just had a, a, a training right before this in the crew on Wadir and how to win your case in Wadir. And we were talking about this very thing is that people don't stay in the boxes that we create for them, right? No. So we can ask what their bumper stickers are, what magazines they're reading or what news programs are watching. And then we make up stories of what we think that means. And we are often wrong. And so what I'm always telling people is, why are we making this so hard on ourselves? Why don't we just go in and ask them what they believe instead of asking them what they're reading? Like, let's just cut out the middleman and go for what, as you said, your mother and your grandmother and we all as Americans tend to, of course, there's some people who fall outside of that, tend to believe and rally around. It's so much easier, I think. So tell us a little bit about this case. So what were you up against? Sure. So in this particular case, this was primarily a securities fraud case. And my background is securities regulation. So that's why I kind of get drawn into these because I understand the way that both federal and states regulate securities fraud. And the big thing is you have to tell the truth. And so that was one of the overall themes that we developed. Mm. Um, but it was in this case, it was an elderly woman. She's, <laughs> she's feisty, but she's probably 75, 76. Um, and her adult son, who's in his 50s, um, they became a acquainted with a group of people that were starting an extended warranty, a car warranty company. And oh, the calls that we were, get all the time. The, yeah, yeah, and this was slightly different, but more or less, yes, uh, extended mm -hmm. car warranty business. They were induced um, through the use of what's called a private placement memorandum or a prospectus that was pretty explicit and ended up being our smoking gun. The document contained more than two dozen explicit promises about what would happen if they invested money where in particular, where that money would go and how it would be used and how it would come back to them. So they invested, they were induced to invest about a quarter of a million dollars into a, um, a, a, a what would they were told was a holding company, but it turns out that the defendants and there were 11 defendants. So we had six, uh, six entity or company defendants. And then we had five individual defendants who were the founders essentially of this group of companies. They were told they were putting money into a holding company and they, they in, in the private placement memorandum, there was an infographic that had this tree that showed the holding company owned all this group of subsidiaries and here's how the money would come up. Well, it turns out that the holding company didn't actually own any of the subsidiaries. It was in fact a worthless shell company. And so our, our one of our challenges was that Traditionally, in a, an investment fraud situation, you have a situation in which um, the, uh, the money is lost, it's gone, and you're trying to get back money. In this instance, they made, you know, they made a fuck ton of money on the investment that they made. The, the company took off, it made a bunch of money. They didn't pay back that money to them because they told them, oh, your shares are worthless. This company, you didn't invest in anything that had any worth. So they sequestered that money off to the side and induced them to invest in a shell company. 
And so we were, that's why we were suing them. Um, and so we went to a two week, uh, well, you know, this really was a four and a half year journey. Uh, we went to trial in August. It was mistried two days into trial because of COVID. One of the defendants who I should point out was convicted four times for fraud in the past, uh, came down with COVID magically on the second day of trial. Mm. Um, and the trial, it was forced to mistry because we had a jury seated, uh, the judge said, I don't care if it turns out he doesn't have COVID. Uh, the, this jury will not sit here. They will want, they will not want to be in a courtroom with someone who had had COVID uh, or potentially had COVID. And so I'm going to have to disband the trial. So, so mistried, it's a huge ordeal. Uh, we had to retry it in February. And so in February, we went a two-week jury trial, ended the first week of March, uh, and we we walked away with a successful a two million dollar jury verdict, which included a million dollars in punitives. And um, you know that's not as impressive as some of our our colleagues who have uh, nine figure verdicts. But in a business world where pain and suffering is not on the table, um, right? Significant verdict in a very very red county. Um, it's is a very rare thing to see any punitive damages, much less seven figure punitive damages. So we were we were quite satisfied and proud of the outcome a win is a win right i i just always say that it's wonderful to have that win so what were some of the issues that you had to deal with particularly with the jury so i know some of the things that you shared with me um in an email is that it one of the problems was there was a lot of complex information that you had to get across sure. so how did you end up doing that sure so you know we had we sued under something like i think we went to trial on seven counts of various state uh, securities fraud, breach of fiduciary duty, um, different theories of common law fraud. We had to distill that all down. So one of the big things that we did was spend a lot of time, how do we take these very complex issues? Very, it's, it's so difficult, you know, counsel, the certain counsel that had been involved in the case at different points in time didn't always understand how do we take this and explain this to a jury in a way that makes them understand? And so we took this down to two things, really. Distilling it down to three rules um, and distilling it down into words that made sense to the jury. And so the three rules that we had were, number one, all companies that, that take investments have a duty to tell the truth to their investors. Rule number two, all companies and their directors have a duty to not conceal or cover up material information that affects the investor's investment. And rule number three, <laughs> great rules one or two, is you have to make it up to those investors by paying them what they're owed. So we use those really turn into two sort of principles and then a remedy or a fix. So we called them yeah. duties. And it made sense because now we're suddenly talking about we're telling the truth. I mean, everyone tells yep. their four-year-old, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old at home, tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. Everyone understands that. They understand that ethically you have to tell the truth. So we we ended up, we took those three rules. What we did is I used the chart. I hand wrote them out. I got some feedback that it takes so long. Someone one, someone um, from our, our trial in, in August told us, said, it took so long for you to write that out. But at the end, I understood I got it. He yes. said, you right. For, for taking the time to write it out, even though I was like, what are you doing? At the end of the, of the opening, I understood what you were doing. Um, so we took those three, we put them on, on big gigantic post-it notes, like the kind you can stick on the wall. The flip charts, we, yeah. We, we pounded them to death over and over. We asked each defendant we put on the stand, do you think companies have a duty to tell the truth to their investors? Every single one of them admitted, yes, of course they do. Do you think that a company has a duty not to conceal or cover up material information from those investors. Yes, of course they did. And, and do you agree that if, you, if a company breaks those, either of those two principles, that they should make it up to the investors by paying them what they're owed? Every single defendant, as prepped as they were, and these are fairly sophisticated individuals, admitted that got us to admit the three rules. They validated those rules early on and throughout the trial. So when it came time to open, you know, to get to closing, it was just a matter of putting them up and saying, look, they're the ones that told you 
that that's exactly right that you know it rules. sounds very much like rick friedman right so these are the yes. rules then they have, to have they either have to agree with them or look stupid disagreeing yes. right yes. so that's the, that's the beauty in it and as you know and so many of our attorneys know that it's difficult to get it that simple i mean once you have it it's like of course, these are these are the things we should always led with. But man, we start with something so complex. And when we really look at our cases and we start getting really clear about how simple they really are, they really are about principles that anybody can. We were just teaching on principles today. Principles are fundamental truths. Like you said, we teach our kids, tell the truth, be truthful, don't lie. People can rally around those principles. Yeah, so the, how did you go ahead? No, I was just going to say the distilling down was the key. And we mm -hmm. probably spent 200 hours just distilling these down. And we oh, had yeah. more than 100 rules and regulations about the sale yeah. of securities. And we had uh, Delaware law, Tennessee law, and Florida law. So we're dealing with three state laws. We elected not to file under federal rules for, for different reasons. We had three different state laws, all of which said different things. How do we still distill them down into something that opposing counsel isn't object, going to object to, that it's not an accurate restatement of the law? But we got it. It worked ultimately at the end of the day. It just took a lot of effort. And that's a well, lot of- really And they sound so simple, but I think you have to go to that, you have to go through that process because we get so lost in the weeds, right? There's all these different jurisdictions. There's all these things that we have to deal with. And there's a hundred different rules. And it's like, really what's true here, right? Don't Absolutely. lie. Don't hide things. And if you do make it right, you're right. So it really comes back down to that. But I think you have to go through the process. So talk to me a little bit about um, jury selection. So you did try, you told me the famous, uh, designed Alliance. And this, for those of you who are watching, and don't know what that is, is where you design with the jury and it can look different. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a kind of a template in the book, but it, it can look however you want to look with how this process is going to go. So I'm very interested to hear, uh, how you designed with the jury and how that went. Sure. So by the time I got to, uh, some of the voir dire questions, I, I was a little, I had not as much time as I wanted to, even though I'd had obviously six months. But um, I, I used your template because I couldn't think of anything necessarily better. But with the addition of, because we're talking about the truth, I used Nick Rowley's Brutally Honest. Brutal Honesty. So I talked about, you know, I'm going to try to get you what you want. And, and, but one more thing, I want you to commit to me to being brutally honest. I'm going to be brutally honest with you because this is a case about telling the truth. And those were some of the first words out of my mouth in the jury trial. This is a case about telling the truth. Um, use that, I would say it with practice and with doing this for, for many, many years, it will, it will get better. One of the things I forgot to do is we got so involved with the jury, I forgot to ask them at the end of the day. And now who at the end of the day ah, wants, wants to, to be on the jury? Wants to be, <clears throat> it didn't matter. The jury was remarkable. We loved our jury. And one of the things I made sure I did was I learned every one of those jurors by name. And every day I thought about those jurors mm. and I thought, what are they thinking? What are they going to want to know? And I gave, I, I personalized each one of them. And I thought that was incredibly helpful. When I got to closing, I wasn't talking to 42 and 64 and you know, 36. Yeah. I was talking to Bill and Mr. Harden and uh, Tammy and, and that I thought created meaningful impact. But our jurors, they, I was shocked how much they ate up this, by any standard, boring ass case about a mm. bunch of people who shouldn't have been investing in you know, extended car warranty business in the first place. They ate it up because of us, I believe a lot of it was credited to, we were able to form that group in the jury selection. What do you guys think? You know, is it, have you ever gotten a call from an extended car warranty company? Oh, tell me about that. How was that? Why is that important to you? What mm -hmm. would you, if you had a chance to speak to those companies that called you, what would you say to them? You know, what would you do to change things? From the beginning, we we're talking about accountability and what can we do to change the things that they, we all know that nobody likes extended car warranty companies. Um, we were able to sort of establish that group early on. Now, when we tried the case in August, I had a very concern because there was no group that was being formed. I liked my jury, but when they were impaneled, they were told because we were still under more strict COVID protocols, 
uh, not to sit near each other. So as a result, the jurors, I think, took what was a concerning but fairly reasonable rule about social distancing. They took it way too much to heart. And as a result, they wouldn't even talk to each other. And, well, I, and, th and that's what we talk about. The jury jury or groups form through interaction. Right? Exactly. If they don't have that interaction, they're not going to form. I was very concerned when I saw them out in the rotunda of the courthouse, reading books by themselves and being separated. In this case, after we finally picked the jury, they broke, we broke for a late lunch. I saw three of the ladies go to lunch together. I thought that, sorry, would like that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I we're forming the group. That's and great. That's great. Right away, like I, I got to go back though, because everyone's wondering. So in the design Alliance, did you do the part where you said now, you know, I want to find out who wants to be here and who wants to go home. And I can't guarantee, you know, that, you, that you'll be able to go home, but are you still wanting to talk to me? Did you do that in there? I did that. It was, I was not as, were, you, ob as were you objected to? No, no objection. Judge, Everyone's freaking no out that, oh, you're not going to be able to do it. Here's now I had a judge people. that will tell you up front, you know, counselors, I like my jury. I like my lawyers to try their own cases, mm. but I did not feel that, either in August or when I did it and they had, had six months to think about what I had said the first time. I yeah. didn't get an objection the second time. I didn't get any objections to any of your type stuff in, um, in jury selection at all. Well, I love hearing that. How did you let the jury um, solve some of your problems? Give me an example of that. In, yeah, that's if there's you. one overarching <laughs> to our conversation today, it's let do it, do what you need to do and don't sweat that. So one of the things we did, as I thought early on, I was able to build some capital with the jury. There was a guy who clearly did not look like he belonged. He, I could even, you know, I could even smell him from where I was standing in the jury. He has head down. He didn't want to answer questions. He didn't want to participate. Um, I finally got to him. I have to ask this guy some questions. Turns out um, he was basically a recluse who was dragged to court, you know, against his will. And his father lives in his house and is dying and he cared for his father. And I, I painted a very tough picture. And he told the court he did not, he, he didn't think he wanted to be there. So rather than sort of wait to the end where you make your, you know, your things on the chits and you make your selections or your, 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 um, gosh, it's been a long time. Yes, your peremptories. I, I made a motion to dismiss him for cause. And the judge didn't, didn't agree with me. He said he hasn't ultimately did dismiss him for cause, but would not <clears throat> dismiss him right there. But I thought the fact that I showed early on, I was willing to give someone up because it was yep, better yep. for them. Yep. I thought that that built some capital with the jury, mm -hmm. it built some credibility. Mm -hmm. Later on in the middle of the trial, so we had, in addition to being mistried in August, we had a juror come down with COVID. Mm. He got dismissed and we, uh, uh, we adjourned for a week through the five, you know, five business day uh, COVID period. And we did not know whether anyone would come back. And the court said, if, if we don't get, you know, 11, or I guess at this point, so we had 14, so we had two plus two. If we don't get our 12 jurors, we're going to have to have a serious conversation about mistrying. 13 jurors were there on time. And it was because wow. we had built enough of a group, they wanted to come back and help. And they all said that. They all said, Your Honor, we want to be here to do the right thing. That later that day, someone's family member died on that jury. She so we were cut then to 12. And oh she goodness. was she specifically requested the court permission to come back. And the court wouldn't let her, you know, said, no, you need to be with your family. But they were that we built investment with the jurors yes. by making the jurors feel like they mattered, by not we distilled information to them. We did not patronize them or dumb yes. it down to where they were not treated again sorry basic stuff treat people like they matter treat treat the women like they matter and that their opinions are valid treat the men like their opinions are valid just stuff you and i teach our children every day if you apply that and apply it earnestly we had uh, opposing counsel uh, asked 
at one point one of the women to remove her mask about half the people were masked it's tennessee masks are not a big thing here mm-hmm. asked one of the women to remove her mask he damaged himself i think by asking her to remove he could have having trouble hearing and i get that yeah, but yeah. not just treating them with that respect of not getting into that sort of thing i think was it was an unforced error on their part but i think that those are the sort of things that just build respect i I felt like they respected me enough to come back and hear what my clients had to say. Well, it's such a great point. And we were talking about earlier in in the training today about the difference between like motivating a jury to act. I mean, that's what we talk about in plaintiff cases is that what y'all are doing is hard because you're trying to motivate them to do something when human behavior, it's just much easier to let things be as they are, right? So we need to motivate them to act. But what y'all hear is I got to persuade them to act. And that's a very different thing altogether. And and, and in fact, I was saying earlier today that when we start persuading people, when it's something so simple, like don't fucking lie, let me persuade you how that's really important. Then then they start having the opposite reaction of, wait, why is this guy trying to convince me of something that's just... uh, a normal thing. We overcomplicate it. We try, we act like it's some magic that we have to perform. We have to be super charismatic. We have to be this magician out there when it's just like, just let find your principles and put them in front of the jury and let them handle this for you. They will, they will. Yeah. In our case, again, the three rules in order to find in favor of the defendant, because the, the proof was overwhelming. The hard evidence was overwhelming. Um, they would have to say that it's okay for people not to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. It's okay for them to cover up information. And even if they did, it, you shouldn't pay them back. They don't get what they, they're owed or what they deserve. Right. I mean, right. those principles, or you could apply that to a car wreck case or you know, a truck wreck case. It's not okay for the truck company to have its you know, backup camera working, or it's not okay for them to observe basic training. Like no one's going to disagree. So don't feel like you have to push them. And that was one of my big things. You know, I've got 17 points that I want to argue, depending on what my counter arguments from opposing counsel are. They didn't need that. They don't need it rammed down their throat. Give it to them. They're human beings. They will figure out all the other steps. And I had to, and it required me to let go. And, you know, we're attorneys. So we want to control every aspect of our case. Mm -hmm. Um, mistrying the case, I think as difficult as it was six months earlier, allowed me to sort of process some of those feelings. Mm, Love that. Yeah. That's why we talk a lot about mindset around here. So tell me about the pig. All right. So this is one of my favorite things to come out of this. So I've always, I've, I, uh, coached, uh, I've, I did mock trial in high school. I did mock trial in college. I did mock trial. I've coached mock trial for years and years and years. One of the things I always tell the kids is get a visual and, and politely ram it down the jury's throat over and over. And, and, and then when you, t- in one of your podcasts, you talk about ringing the bell, you know, come back to the same thing over and over and ring that bell. And it creates these neural pathways mm-hmm. with the jury. So they understand things. Well, I have a case involving you know, um, fraud and telling the truth. And I didn't have Pinocchio to go up there, although that would have been a great, if I could have had someone that his nose grew every time, that would have been great. Mm-hmm. But I needed something to explain stocks and shares and how stocks make money and how the ownership relates to the, the, the investor and how you can lose all of that. And I couldn't think and couldn't think finally, like a week before trial, I said, you know what, go on Amazon, and buy a piggy bank. So we bought a uh, a pink piggy bank that was. So it's got to be pink. It's yeah. got to be pink. Um, and it's across my office, I should have put it on my desk. But um, we bought this piggy bank. And my partner Dan Barr, my partner, he's a very experienced. He litigates all over the country. Extremely experienced. He told me later. He said, "I thought you were an idiot for for this piggy <laughs> bank. It's, it's very um, it's very whimsical." I'm not very whimsical. Um, and it was this very whimsical pig. And so what we did is in this, after our teaching session or in the middle of our teaching session, I said, look, this piggy bank represents my, um, my client's shares. You can put money into it. And I robbed my kids' banks where they have like the gold dollars and the silver dollars. 
So I needed something that clinked. So I, mm -hmm. the night before trial, I stole all their money out of their piggy banks and I put it in and dropped it and rattled it around. I said, these are shares. They can gain value by, by profits being generated and the coins in there, or you can take the piggy bank and whatever's in it and sell it for a profit. So that was the piggy bank. So I used it then. And then I sat it at the front part of council table and it, it sat there every day. And every time we talked about shares, I'd pick up the piggy bank and, and talk to it, talk to my client. Well, tell me about, you know, what's in your piggy bank? What do you think's in your piggy bank? And so the piggy bank more from just an explanation of what a share was to these are my hopes and dreams. You know, mm. this is what, this was my retirement. I was going to be able to go visit the grandkids. I was going to be able to, you know, afford to take a cruise. I was, this was, this makes going to the grocery store every week earlier. And so the piggy bank got that. And then it sort of got out of control. So what happened was uh, when the juror got COVID, the judge um, instituted a mask mandate in the courtroom because we haven't had mask mandates in Tennessee courtrooms in probably six months. And the judge put in a mask mandate for everyone. Well, we put a mask on the pig. I knew it was coming. <laughs> again, it's just, again, not even my style necessarily. It was just sort of whimsical. We put them right there on the front of the council table. The woman in the jury, and they were, you know, this is the, this is jury trial. They took it very seriously. They were warned not to talk to anybody. The woman who turned out to be the foreman of the jury stopped in her tracks, turned to my, turned to my paralegal and said, oh, I love the mask on the piggy bank. Like, just like, <laughs> didn't even mean to. And like, she, it was just, she blurted it out. That's the moment I knew we had the jury. Yep. They were paying yep. attention to the pig. Then we named the pig. I, I <laughs> said like, and so Wilbur over here. And so the pig suddenly mm -hmm. had the name Wilbur. Mm -hmm. So then it even I love this. personalized. And then, so what I did in closing, if is I had, I got a silver ball peen hammer. I was going to say, did this thing get smashed or what? Well, that was our original intention. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was going to smash the piggy bank and say mm -hmm. there was nothing in the piggy bank. Then in the middle of trial, I realized I couldn't hurt the piggy bank. Yeah, I can't hurt Wilbur. We're attached to this pig that had a name. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we took the piggy bank and I put them out and then I pulled out the hammer from behind mm -hmm. the desk. The jury gasped. Yeah. <gasps> Oh my God. Yes. I love this so much. And they said, what I said was opposing counsel. If you let, if you let the defendants get away from the fraud, you've smashed their hopes and dreams. Oh my God. And again, you know, Dude. it's, yeah, okay, it's over can I just stop you. Can I just stop you from it? You were having the time of your life is what I'm hearing. Oh, absolutely. and this is what we hear from so many of people who try a case at H2H way. They're like, it was the most fun that I ever had because you're not all freaked out and you're just trying shit and you're just having a ball. I mean, I wish I could have been there. This sounds incredible. It was, it was so much fun. This is what we live for as trial lawyers. Yes, right? yes, like, it is. We want the, we, the jury gasped. And oh I told gosh. them at the end of trial, I said, your verdict, because remember, we're dealing with about $250,000 in, not millions of dollars in. Told them your verdict should make them gasp. Oh, yeah, we got we got a two million dollar verdict and it wasn't all the pig, but it was right. You know, Wilbur has a special spot on my shelf now at this point. Oh, I love it. I love it. You got to go get him. Go get him real quick. I wanna see him. Oh. Yeah, I want to see. We got to see. Wilbur. you guys want to see Wilbur, right? Come on. You want to see Wilbur start loading up your questions in um, in the Q&A here or if you're on Facebook and Christy, if you could drop in the link for the power of the flip chart um podcast and ringing the bell podcast that would be good for our members and for on facebook too but i just love this so having fun at trial this is what we're all about over here oh i love this it wilbur. there's wilbur yes, i'm so wilbur. glad he didn't get smashed he didn't That's get smashed wonderful he was saved so because is this the, the jury first the right thing the jury yeah. saved Wil wilbur jury yes so, so how is that different than using a gimmick in your mind? There's a super fine line. If it what had to it? work, it would have been a gimmick. Mm -hmm. um, but 
there was truth wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I could have used the Pinocchio nose, you know, like the Washington Post does or something like that. That may have felt gimmicky because it's obvious. There's no obvious connection between a piggy bank, as silly as it is, and um, what we were talking about. So I think it has to do with, if you're going to do something like that, first of all, you have to fully commit. If Mm -hmm. I had gone half- Oh, so true. Oh, half-assing it would have been a disaster. Yeah. If I had put it out, you know, shown it on day one and then put it in the box and not done anything, people would have said, what was that piggy bank? That was kind of dumb. It was dumb. Yeah. But yeah. I, you lean into the whimsical part of it. And again, that's not my style, particularly to be whimsical. Um, I but th- I also think it worked because it, there's the truth and this represented it versus here's this thing that I want to force on you and have it be this thing. It, it already existed. The truth already existed. You just like gave it like an, what we call a structure, right? Sure. You're like, here's the sure. structure for this thing we're talking about. And it made sense in jurors' minds instead of bringing out some random thing and trying to manipulate the jury with it, right? And saying, here's what this is really about when that's not actually what it was about. It just became representation. It made a lot of sense. And unfortunately, I, I think a lot of that grew organically. You know, I was going to smash the pig. I, I didn't realize until most of the way through the trial that they had an emotional connection with it. It That's grew, right. the, the mask was a uh, last minute, like, oh, we've all got to wear but a mask, put a mask on the pig. That's huh? the magic of this, is that you're not following any kind of script. You're, you're watching the jury, you're noticing what, how they're responding. And this is where all the fun group dynamic stuff gets to come in and you're playing with that. That's where, where we talk about that this is really an art that y'all are doing, but you can't get to the artistry until you let go of your bullshit beliefs about jurors and about how you have to control the whole process and about how they're there to kill you. Once you get rid of all of that, then you can play. We talk a lot about play around here. We mean play. I'm like, I mean, play. I mean, look at all the, the attorneys that have been coming on and doing trial debriefs. Y'all are telling me the same thing. Oh my God, this was so much fun. Oh my God. I listened to my instincts. Oh my God. I trusted the jury. And that's a different experience than most trial attorneys are having today. Is this the first time you've done like an H2H trial besides the, the mistrial? Yes, it is. And how, how was it different than how you've tried cases before outside of the, the specific things you've already told us? One of the things I think it, it did do is I think it confirmed my instincts. I've, mm. I've been doing, a, you know, again, the, the theme or the, you know, the object lesson or the pig, um, that's something I can see looking for without hearing that from you first. It confirmed that those instincts I need to lean into f- more fully. And it provided like a scientific and logical framework that you can then take your instincts and extrapolate them out. Oh, mm-hmm. that's what you, that's why I, I'm talking to the jury about principles is because they're forming a group and you mm-hmm. connected my instincts that I've had as a, as a, as a trial attorney with real, a real basis in reality that allowed me to then lean into what those instincts were and develop those instincts. You know, like if you're a good baseball player, you're going to throw the ball good, but then you learn that here's the mechanics of why you do that. And now you learn if you can put your body into it, you can get a lot more speed out of the pitch. It was that sort of, it, it gave a framework upon which to hang or drape your instincts. I, I love that. And I think what you're talking about is labeling. So, so we're really big on going, here's what this is called so that you can identify it and know how it works and why it works, right? Or what happens if it doesn't work. So it's, it's, it's labeling is so, I think, so big at putting a name on something so that it's repeatable, right? So that you know why something happened the way that it did. Um, but I also think something you said is really important is we just had a client out here for a week, a couple of weeks ago, we had him in front of three mock juries. And he said, I think one of the differences with the H2H method is that's an actual method. He's like, there's so many people out there that are like, you know, war stories or here's what I did. And then we go and we try to copy that, but it doesn't make any sense. Or you bring in the trial consultant and they have all of the, of the wisdom and you have to be with them for them to figure out. I mean, you and I never worked together. You just got this out of the book and the podcast. And I, that's, I, that's such a blessing to me to know that, that my work is, is helping, even if you, you don't, I'm not there with you. So, so I'm so grateful for that. What would be some advice you might give trial attorneys who are, who are 
maybe thinking this is terrible. I hate the jury. I'm scared of them or any of the things that most trial attorneys are thinking. I hate to give advice to people who are very, very capable, much more capable attorneys than I am. So with, but with that caveat, distill down your principles. If I had come in with six things and different, you know, the jury would have been lost. We might've gotten something at the end of the day. No one would have wanted to have been there. No one would have sat through you know, the experts, when we finally got to the experts, no one wanted to hear, no one would have wanted to hear that. Um, Give, yeah, distill it down. And once you've got it distilled down, give it to them and then let them do it. And I know you have it every week or every other week, but it's like, they will get it. If you can explain it to them the way they understand. Well, I'll give you one example. The principle of the under the law for our third principle is, which is pay them what they deserve or pay them what they're owed, is called benefit of the bargain. And it's both Florida and Tennessee law. It says, if you've defrauded someone, you have to give them the benefit of the bargain. So we were using benefit of the bargain. And I kept saying that, kept saying that. And even like when I went home to my, like my family for like the weekend, I mentioned it to them and they didn't get that part. They were getting everything else. They didn't get benefit of the bargain. And my co-counsel, Zach Darnell, um, who sat second chair with me, he had the same experience with his family. And we were talking about like, why don't they understand this? It's a very simple concept. Uh, One of my staff members pointed out, well, but bargain, especially in the South, means a deal. It means they're getting something Mm -hmm. at a discount. Yep, sale. That doesn't... to me, as a first year, being a first year law student a long time ago, we all know that bargain means to negotiate and reach an agreement over a particular set of, of terms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bargain. That didn't, it's not what it meant to the jury. Mm. It's not what it meant to ordinary people. They were thinking that there was some level of sale or deal or discount built into the word when that's not what we meant at all. And that's not what the statute says. So we had to really go back and really limit that use of the word because they were reading something into what we were spoon feeding them when we really just needed to tell them, you know, give them what they deserve. And, well, and- I love this. What I'm hearing about this whole trial experience is you are so adaptable in the moment, right? You're like, we're keep using this word. It's going to work. And then you're like, it's not working. Why is this not working? Right. And so you stopped using it or limited using it. You saw that you're going to smash the pig. You decided not to the whole mass thing. You put it on the pig, right? I think this is, this is where it gets really good. And this is where you guys really can outshine the opponent is because you, you get to get creative. If you lean into your intuition and you're adaptable during trial, you want it to be scripted. You want the formula. You want everything to be, be set out in advance. It just isn't done that way you've got to be thinking on your feet just like you were able to do in this trial and i think that's what what got you this great beautiful verdict you have to be able to uh get rid of things that you really like in it you cannot mm-hmm. i really like the benefit of the bargain i thought it made a lot yeah. of sense you have to be willing yeah. to say that doesn't work i'm going to change but that's I'm exactly doing. right that's exactly right we were again with the client we had three juries and every time we got in front of a jury we were like "Ooh, that didn't work let's try that let's try Things that we had sat here and, and worked up on our own that we thought were brilliant. We tried out in front of a jury and we're like, oh, we don't love that, right? And he comes in and he says, well, I, I did a clopening with the focus group and they gave me all this negative information. And I said, well, did you do a wadir as well? No, you never do that with focus groups. You just throw a clopening on them, right? And I'm like, well, there's your problem. Garbage in, garbage out. If you're not, if you don't have this group formed in wadir around your principles, if I just throw information at them, they're gonna tell me something that's totally different then if we give them piece by piece and they're, they're playing with the principles and then the opening gets layered on top of it, they've got to be involved in the process. Not to say that focus groups don't tell us some great information, but it's, it's an incomplete information. Sure. And you saw that here with, with the jury that you got to actually play this. Well, congratulations on your win. I don't see any, any questions um, so far. Um, if you have questions, go ahead and load them up now. But um, what will you do differently moving forward? And you're in upcoming trials. Oh, um, it worked pretty well. I think yeah. uh, more of uh, distilling down, more of getting, you know, 
taking things down. The flip chart worked extremely well. Um, I would probably work the designing alliance. I will try to adapt it more for my own um, words. But I, I, I got the feeling early on I didn't know enough about how to do it properly to do it on my own. So I wanted to use what you had recommended. And I must have listened to your podcast that that I think it was like a 40 minute long podcast on how to do it. I must have listened mm -hmm. to at least portions of that six or seven times. Um, uh, I will probably learn, try to uh, grow that make it your own, make it on my, mm -hmm. make, make it my own. Um, that would have been the big thing just because I don't, I think that that is, and you've, you've said this from for a long time, that's not a one size fits all thing. You, you right. can't just assume it's not going to work in all circumstances. I think it worked pretty well. And I think we got where we wanted to get fantastically. I wouldn't say that my eloquence was what on that one issue was where was, was the deciding factor. So I will continue to learn to develop that. Do you feel that the design though is helpful? I think you have to, if you can tell the jury, this is where we're going, mm -hmm. then you'll form the group. Yep. It, it yep. follows that one yep. comes next. Absolutely. But so, so many attorneys are so afraid they're going to be objected to you and the judge will never let you say that. And you guys continue to come on over and over again and say, it went fine. And you know no what? Problem here. Let them object. Yep. Right. Let them object. That's the point of trial is objections. Yeah. Great. There is a question. I see that. Oh, uh, what was it like to simplify such a complex area of law? What was it like to what? Simplify such a complex area of law. I enjoy it. I find that I'm naturally a teacher. Um, although some people probably don't want to hear me teach because I, but I feel like sort of, I'm not a know-it-all, but I want everybody to know what, what I know because it's so exciting and I want them to be excited about it as well. Um, yeah. So distilling those complex areas, which I'm very comfortable living in day to day, because that's what, what I do as an attorney. Um, bringing it down was exciting because it's like, how do I, it was very goal-oriented. How do I get this to where an ordinary person who may very well be smarter than I am understands this one niche area that I, I know that, you know, only literally a few thousand people in this country understand. Like, how do but I that's get- that's oftentimes a problem that you're so close to it, right? Because you so live into it. You live with it. That's, that's, the, that's the issue, isn't it? It's like, I can, I get it. How do I explain it to someone who doesn't have the knowledge that you have? I think that's the exact be, issue. You have to be selfless in that you you have to put your ego aside because that's yeah. what it comes down to, right? I understand it. Why doesn't everyone else? That's an ego problem. It's your, if you are the only person in the room that understands this very complex issue, there's a problem because unless you can communicate <laughs> that, that to other people, you've done nothing. You're yeah, it has no value. It, it has no it. value has zero exactly. value. You have to be able to get it down to where other people understand it too. And you have to put your ego aside to do that. That's right. That's right. Richard Hill is asking, how did you incorporate your designed alliance strategies in your case prep, like depots and in pleadings? I don't think, Richard, that you do that. This is the part of the uh, trial where you're designing with the jury about um, whether or not they want to be there or not. So that I don't know if there's anything you want to say there to that, Scott. Yeah, I would say perhaps maybe turn this question and how did I use maybe the, some of the principles of the rules? Mm, in, mm -hmm. um, to tell you the truth, I think I got to Sari's wealth of knowledge and her methods after we had completed a lot of that. However, I definitely would begin to incorporate things that you want the jury to hear admitted like the three rules if i had come up with mm -hmm. the three rules earlier you would adapt them into your deposition um you uh the jury instructions i really pushed hard for the jury instructions to sort of secretly and surreptitiously follow the three rules yeah opposing yeah, why wouldn't you what my three rules were so they were willing to allow me to sneak in language that mirrored my three rules. 
And so which if is you why can... you may not want to put them in depositions, right? You may want to save some of this for trial. It's, it's got, it's it. a decision that, yeah, you might, you, sometimes it may help for you. Sometimes you may help to save it for trial and have it. But, kind but of your um, you know, Rick Freeman and rules of the road talks about drafting from the jury instructions. The jury That's instructions right. are the principal. Ultimately the jury instructions are the principles. Yes, exactly. They are. The jury. So I think mm -hmm. it, Richard, it does help to from day one holistically think about where I'm going with this and what I want the jury to believe and what I want them to believe for me at the end of the day. However, it's going to change 15 times because my rules change 15 times and you have to be willing to adapt and you have to be willing to jettison the things that you you're smoking guns from six months or two years ago in depositions. You have to be able to throw those out and go do something completely different. That's exactly right. That's what makes a great trial lawyer. Well, we talked about that, Richard, in, in the trial or in the training earlier today. So you can go back and look at how to create principles from that. If you're in the crew, if you're not in the crew, you can join the waitlist at fromhostagetohero.com for when we open again. And Scott, so glad that you had this win. Congratulations again. Thank you for being here. It was such a pleasure to meet you. And I hope that you continue on your journey of winning more cases. Thank you. Congrats. I look, look forward to working with uh, you and continuing our uh, you know, working relationships. So Wonderful. Okay, we'll talk soon. Thank you, everybody, right. for being here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me today. If you benefited from what we talked about or just want to let me know you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and leave me a review on whichever platform you use to listen to From Hostage to Hero. Add a comment and I just might give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, head over to fromhostagetohero.com to order your copy of my book, From Hostage to Hero, Captivate the Jury by Setting Them Free. And to get on my mailing list, I send out trial tips and encouragement right to your inbox every single week. And while you're there, make sure you join the waitlist to become an H2H crew member when we reopen. We only open a few times each year and you do not want to miss out. I look forward to our time together in next week's episode. Talk then.